Nobody mentioned me. <laughs> I was a little hurt, but that's okay. I'll get over it. Alright, if you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. As um, I'm going to say a number of times as we go through these sections of Romans, they are, they are difficult to understand. And there are disagreements even among conservative Bible teachers, as to what exactly the passage means. And this is one of them. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the best theologians that, that I know personally is my oldest son. And uh, I was telling him, I said, you know, you got chapter 5, you got chapter 6, fairly straightforward. Then you get to 7, real problem. Some in eight, and I said, then in nine, and he said, no, Dad. He said, nine is very clear. It's just that people don't want to believe what it says. <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, but here in chapter five, last week we talked about our union with Christ, and that Paul uses that phrase in Christ over and over. And this passage from verse 12 through verse 21 says that all men are either in Adam or in Christ. So last week we talked about our union with Christ, and really uh, it was an introduction to the section. But if I'd placed it with this one, you'd have been here in an hour, everybody, you know, everybody had been screaming at me, you know. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> this theme of union with Christ is very, very important as is the union with Adam. You can't really understand what it means to be in Christ unless you understand what it means to be in Adam. Nor can you understand in Adam without understanding in Christ. Adam is the man that is mentioned, of course, in verse 12, when Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man. That man is Adam. So the passage starts with him and builds from him, showing on one hand the union of the human race in Adam, and then the union of all believers in Christ, and how those two unions are similar. And yet on the other hand, they are quite different. The result of the first being uh, evil, and the result of the second being Good, And since these verses also deal with justification, a theme that we looked at extensively in chapter 4, and we'll be looking at again, this uh, passage helps in our understanding of that great doctrine. Uh, Paul has been teaching, you remember, that justification is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We are declared righteous based upon what Jesus Christ has done. And when we believe, all of the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. And all of our sins are imputed to Him. But people are sometimes reluctant to accept that truth. The reason being that we really cling tenaciously to the idea that we can save ourselves. And, and we do that by just being good enough. And then, like I said last week, we hit those days 
and I had one of them this week. You know, I, I, I ended up preaching my last week's sermon to myself uh, this week because I, I had one of them bad days. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you what I did so you can revel in it. But anyway, um, we think that when we're good enough, we deserve grace. But then we hit a day when we're not good enough. And then we realize that we don't deserve grace. And were it not for grace, we could not be saved. And so, in order to help us understand the principle of imputed righteousness, Paul shows us that we've already been treated on that basis. Uh, the same principle is operative when we are in Adam, when we were born. So he, he starts in verse 12 by teaching that sin, which is followed by death, came into the world by Adam. But notice carefully at the end of verse 12, in your Bible you have a, a dash indicating that the thought breaks off right there. And then Paul inserts what we would call a parenthesis. And it gets a bit more complicated than that. Verse 13 and 14 are a parenthesis. They explain what Paul meant by what he said at the end of verse 12. Because all sinned. And so verses 13 and 14 explain that. Original sin, the doctrine of original sin that theologians talk about is here. But original sin was not Adam's sin. You say, well, that was the original sin. Well, yeah, but original sin means this. When Adam sinned, you sinned. When Adam sinned, I sinned. When Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned. That's original sin. Because Paul says that death passed to all because all sinned. In Adam, we all sinned. But at the end of verse 14, <laughs> the apostle throws in another parenthesis. So now we got a parenthesis within a parenthesis. Because he is elaborating on the parallel that is between Adam and Christ that he suggested in verse 14. So he fills that out in verse, verses 15 through 17. So it's really not until you get to verse 18 that you get the continuation of his thought that he started in verse 12. And I point that out so that you can see the full parallelism between Christ and Adam. According to these verses, believers are now in Christ just like they were once in Adam. There is a similarity. But of course also there is a great contrast. Since in Adam, the human race has experienced sin, which leads to condemnation and to death. While in Christ, believers have experienced righteousness, leading to justification and eternal life. The two sequences are exactly parallel. When Adam sinned, his sin is imputed to us, because all sinned. So if you put the two verses together, 12 and 18, the thought goes like this. On the one hand, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, 
because all sin, that is just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also on the other hand, the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. So this ver- these verses are teaching there were two great acts in history. The act of Adam, which brought condemnation and death, and the act of Jesus Christ, which brought justification and life. The first one is brought by virtue of our union with Adam. The second is brought by virtue of our belief in Jesus Christ. Now verse 12 assumes two great truths. Number one, the universality of sin. And number two, the universality of death. And Paul can do that because there's hardly anyone who would be foolish enough to challenge him. I mean, uh, the most thoroughly secular person in the world would not would not claim to be without sin. You hear people say, well, I'm no saint. You know, my children used to say to me when they would misbehave, well, Dad, I'm not perfect. I never thought you were. Never occurred to me that you were. So that is true. And again, the universality of death is a given. We say there's nothing certain in life but death and taxes. Using an absolute certainty, death, to illustrate the certainty of a lesser truth, taxes. But that raises some very big questions. How do you explain that situation? Why is death universal? Why is death the universal experience of all? Why, you'd think just on the basis of the law of average, someone would escape. That, that someone, somewhere, sometime, would be sinless. Some descendant of Adam would not have sin and would not die. So how do you answer that? Why isn't there someone somewhere without sin that is a descendant of Adam and somewhere someone who has not sinned who is a descendant of Adam? Born in the same way that Adam was and all human beings except for Jesus Christ. And when you try to answer those questions, you come to a separation between secular and Christian thought. The secular mind says two things. Number one, there is no connection between sin and death at all. They are two unrelated issues. And number two, each of them can be explained naturally. As far as sin is concerned, the secular view assumes that Sin is simply an imperfection that is soon to be overcome. Of course, that view of sin fits with the prevailing evolutionary framework of of our time, which says that all things are gradually evolving from less complex and less perfect forms to forms that are more complex and more perfect. And the secular-minded person argues that sin means only that we are not yet where we hope to be. But eventually, we will be. Well, there's two things wrong with that. First, if sin is only an imperfection, then you really can't call it sin. 
I mean, if it's an imperfection, it's not really sin. Nor can you look down on it as uh, less desirable than the next inevitable stage in the evolutionary process. So sin can't really be bad at all, which eliminates any talk of virtue. So nothing is good or bad. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter where, you know, you, you love your neighbor or kill him. No difference. If sin is simply an imperfection, then you can't call it sin. And why would it be any less desirable than any other stage of the evolutionary process? So to say that is to say that no action can be inherently wrong. And the second problem is this. If sin is only an imperfection to be eliminated in time as a result of man's inevitable upward movement uh, in the race, why has it been around so long? What, do you, I mean, do you, do you think we're getting better? Do you think the human race is getting better? I mean, we're moving upward all the time, right? I'm not seeing it. If, if sin is only a minor imperfection, why hasn't it been eliminated? I mean, why do we have all of man's inhumanity to man? Why do we have people going around doing mass killings? Why is there genocide in parts of the world? Why are there governments who, who are killing people by the thousands? What, what is that about? Why is there robberies and rapes? What? Sin is a minor imperfection. Looks, doesn't look that way to me. Can we possibly say that we are any better than the Romans were? Or the Greeks? Or even the barbarians? <laughs> it's hard to say that. But if that is the case, doesn't that fact alone suggest that sin is a much greater problem than the secular mind's framework will allow? The other inescapable reality is death. The, the secular mind says that that is something that is inherent in nature itself. doesn't have anything to do with uh, evolution like sin that will be overcome. It's just natural. Natural. It's inescapable. All living things die. I remember talking to a man whose wife went to this church many years ago. He was not a believer. We were talking about her coming death. She had cancer. and He said, I know that death is just a natural part of life. And I stopped him and I said, really? Do you hope there is a life after death for your wife? Oh, he said, yes, I believe there will be. She's gone to church. She, she and I said, why do you hope that? If death is just natural, where would that hope come from? Where did that longing for a life after this one come from? And why is that longing present in every civilization that man has ever known? Why throughout human history have there, have there been a, has there been a longing for life? Why Mount Olympus? Why Valhalla? Why Hades or Shale? of the underworld, nirvana, paradise, heaven, whatever you call it. Why is it the universal longing of the human heart that there should be something 
beyond death. If death is just natural, if it's just a cycle of, of birth and life and then death, and that's how things should be, then why do all men long for something else? Why have they not just accepted that fact and went on? And the Christian answer to the problem of the universality of sin and death is that it is not natural. But rather it is the punishment of God for sin. It says that sin entered the world through the one act of Adam, who was the first man, and then from Adam, sin and its consequence, death, passed to all of Adam's descendants. All men die because all sinned in Adam. Because of Adam's sin, the human race was plunged into sin and death. And the only escape is through faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, the Christian view is far more comprehensive than that. We're going to be looking at it over the next few weeks. But I want us to think about this verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because there's some different viewpoints out there in the world as to what that means. The first view is named after a 4th century theologian by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius was opposed by uh, Augustine uh, of the Bishop of Hippo. And I bring up his viewpoint because even though Pelagius has been condemned as a heretic by more church councils than any man in the history of the church, many 20th century commentators follow his views. And so there are many out there who have the same view of, as Pelagius. Pelagianism teaches that each human being sins in his or her own person apart from any relationship to Adam. And the person's death, which follows, is a consequence of that sin only. So Pelagius said, you are a sinner because you sin. The biblical view says, you sin because you're a sinner, because you're born a sinner, because you sinned in Adam. There are several reasons why Pelagianism is wrong, aside from the fact that Pelagius was not very right about anything. But, first of all, it's not observably true. Not all who die, die for their own sins. For example, babies die, and yet they haven't sinned. Uh, and second, it contradicts the explanation of the phrase that Paul gives of because all sinned in verses 13 and 14. I said those verses are a parenthesis where Paul is explaining what he said in verse 12. And he says that death reigned, watch this, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command like Adam did. The law was not given. But death reigned from Adam to Moses even though they had not broken a specific command. So, 
uh, they did not sin as Adam did. But that would be untrue if Pelagianism holds that every individual dies because of his or her own actual transgression. Adam died because he broke the command of God. He did not do what God said. But also, this interpretation of the universality of sin is inconsistent with the overall flow of the passage. The point of the argument is that we are declared righteous in Christ, just as we have been declared sinful in Adam. You always run into people who don't want anything to do with uh, having Adam's sin imputed to them are saying that they sinned in Adam. Be careful, because if you're not going to go that route, you can't say you're declared righteous in Christ either. And if you don't get his imputed righteousness into your account, there ain't no way to heaven. There's no way to have the forgiveness of sin. The argument of the passage is, we're all in Adam. And when we believe, we're all in Christ. Uh... And it, it, it breaks the whole flow. We are not declared righteous in Christ because of any righteousness that we have done. We haven't done anything. His righteousness is just imputed to us. And so the parallel holds. If we are to be declared righteous based upon the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, then we are declared sinful on the basis of Adam's sin. Even though we sin personally, that's not the point. The point is, when Adam sinned, we sinned. Uh, and then the, the Pelagian view is inconsistent with the tense of the verb here. The tense of the verb is an aorist. So it cannot mean that all people do sin or that they are accustomed to sin, but rather that they sinned at a particular moment in the past. In the context of the passage, it can only mean that we sinned in Adam. We sinned in Adam. Second interpretation is attributed to John Calvin, but many believers think that Calvin just kind of slipped up, didn't give the right interpretation because he he contradicts it in some other places but I'll just mention it to you he took Romans 5:12 uh, to mean uh, they took the word sin in Romans 5:12 to mean corruption and the verse to teach that sin passed to all men because all are corrupted of course all men are corrupted by sin that's true uh, and each would also be condemned for his or her own sin apart from Adam but the passage we are studying is not dealing with that. Uh, Paul is not teaching that in Romans. As in the Pelagian view, the interpretation of corruption is inconsistent with what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. The next view is that of uh, Augustine. Uh, it was held by many theologians in the Middle Ages and even into the modern day. It is referred to as the realistic view, or the, or the uh, seminal view. 
It holds that the human race sinned in Adam because in a literal, physical sense, all future generations were in Adam at that time. So when Adam acted, the whole race acted. And he was judged, the whole race was judged literally in him. Uh, many people would discount that as medieval thinking and you'd say, well, that doesn't have any... Uh, biblical support at all well if it were not for a verse in Hebrews chapter 7 I would say the same thing but there the writer is talking about Levi Melchizedek and Abraham and says this one might even say that Levi who collects the tenth paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. You know the story. Abraham goes out and defeats the kings of Chedorlaomero, and he, he meets Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, and he pays him a tithe. He gives him a tenth of the spoils. And the writer of the Hebrews says that you could say that Levi paid that tithe as well because he was in the body of Abraham. He, he was a descendant of Abraham. Uh, and if that is so, then the human race sinned in Adam. Uh, I wouldn't completely dismiss that view. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to dismiss a theologian of the stature of Augustine. But I don't think it captures the full meaning of the passage. I think the fourth view, which is called federalism, is, is really what Paul is teaching here. And this, this teaches that God appointed Adam the head or the representative of the race. So that Adam stood for all of his descendants. And everyone would be accounted either sinful or just on the basis of his obedience or disobedience to the command that God gave him. Uh, it's called federalism because... You know, if, if someone, uh, an ambassador, acts on behalf of his country as he signs a treaty, he signs it for the whole country. You know. So in this way, Adam represents the human race. And in this view, the point is not that all people sin, although they do, but rather that Adam stood for them. And when he sinned, not only did that cause his fall but the fall of the entire race because God had named him as the representative so that when Adam sinned, everyone sinned. Uh, and because of that, death passed to the whole human race. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, Adam's sin is imputed to us in exactly the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We inherit, of course, a sinful nature from Adam, but that is not what condemns us. What condemns us and makes us subject to death is the fact that we have all sinned in Adam and that we are all held guilty of sin. It is the union with Adam that accounts for all of our troubles so that it is the corresponding union with Christ that accounts 
for our salvation. Uh, I believe that there are two proofs of that in the passage that Paul uh, is discussing here in Romans 5. One, the fact that death was in the world before the giving of the law of Moses. And then secondly, the fact that all die, even innocents. If sin is the transgression of the law, and people who did not have the law were punished then how do you explain the fact that everyone died from Adam to Moses unless they all fell in Adam? And so they're all born sinners. And they sin because they're born sinners. Or, or to make it even more pointed, why do infants die today? Unless, along with the rest of the race, they are fallen in Adam. Uh, or for that matter, why, why, would, why would a baby suffer? Why, why would a baby have colic or get cancer? Unless, unless this, federal, this federalist view is, is correct. I, I, I can only see two other possible answers, and they are both inadequate. One is that evil is eternal that that sin and death and evil have simply always existed I don't believe that I, I believe that evil is a corruption of the good but I don't believe that good can come out of evil God did not create evil uh, so it cannot be eternal only God is eternal the other argument that people make, of course, is reincarnation. Is that a baby suffers because of the sins committed in a past life. Well, obviously I'm not buying reincarnation. But that doesn't solve the problem either. You've just pushed it back. Well, what about another life and another life and another life? You know, you, you just like holding a mirror up to a mirror. You just keep seeing mirrors. You don't really solve the problem at all. The, wrong, the only really valid explanation, I think, is the one that Paul gives. Namely, that Adam was appointed by God to be the representative for the race. And we all stood in Adam. And when he fell, we fell with him. Now, some will say, well, that's terribly unfair. Uh, that, that, that's, that's cruel. But really, if you think about it, this is the fairest way that, that, that God could have, could have done it. Really, it's a proof of God's grace. It was gracious to Adam, first of all, because I think it would have been a deterrent to his sin. I mean, a man might commit a sin if he's the only one that's going to be hurt by it. But if he realizes that his children are going to be hurt by it, then that's a deterrent then he may not commit that sin knowing that it will hurt his children when they are involved. Uh, and it is fair because who could be a better representative of the race than Adam? He was unfallen. He did not have a sinful mind or actions. He had one command. One. Don't eat of that fruit of the tree 
of good the knowledge of good and evil. One command. Just one command. And guys, here's the kicker. He had a perfect wife. A perfect wife. How many of us could walk a straighter line? Let's don't go there. But but Adam was obviously the most fit representative that that could be had. He was possessed of his full faculties, not tainted by sin, undoubtedly far superior to us. He lived in a perfect environment. For our part, we're sinful and weak and ignorant, live in a world filled with all kinds of temptations. Was it not merciful of God to judge us in Adam? And if God had chosen to judge us in the way that we think we should be judged, that is, with no relationship to Adam, then again, we will all inevitably perish. Because there is no, there is no way that we can attain to the perfect righteousness that God demands of us unless, unless that righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. All men are born in Adam. And they are all sin because they are sinners. All believers come to be in Christ. And just as Adam's sin is imputed to the human race, Christ's righteousness is imputed to all believers. And so just as we fell and were condemned in Adam, so we may also be acquitted and saved in Christ. The, the, the question then becomes are you still in Adam or are you in Christ have you believed the gospel have you believed that Christ died for your sins and that he was buried and that he rose the third day that is the only way to be counted righteous let's pray our father and our God we thank you for the